when we begin to ask these big questions about relationships, where they went south, we're rarely talking about the thing that just happened. I'm Christy Bourne. And I'm Rainier Wild. Together, we're investigating the mysteries of love and relating. We get gritty and dig deep into why love is the tie that binds us together. And also drives us to our knees. This is our story. This is your story. This is Love Like Hell. Well, there was Charlie and Jeremy and then Charlie again, then Jeremy. Those two went back and forth. Then there was Joey. He was my first dance ever. Jared. I think I kind of liked him because he had nice muscles. You know, he looked good. And Robbie. Well, Robbie liked me, but I didn't like him. In fact, one time he called the house and I picked up the phone I knew he was going to ask me to a dance, and I really didn't want to go with him. I thought I was in the clear. It was Sunday night, Sunday night. So I picked up the phone because I had been avoiding it all weekend. And he said, is Christy there? And I went, oh. I said, no, she's not. Can I take a message? And he said, yeah. It's Robbie. Let her know I called. Ugh, that was embarrassing. Then there was Frankie and Jimmy. Jeremy. He was a friend of my brother's. Now that was awkward. And Ken. He was just too nice. And Todd, which I broke up with because I like this guy, Scott. And then... Well, there was Leif. I think he was just good looking. Then, Mr. Denver, can't remember his name, but he was there too. Then Chris, he worked in the library. I don't know, maybe I was kind of lonely. And then David. And what do they all have in common? I guess I kind of left him in the dust. I mean, oh my gosh. Actually, one of them, I really did that too. We were on a bike ride, and it was a long one. And I love to ride my bike. And he asked me if I want to go, and I'm like, yeah. And pretty soon, I'm bored, because he's going way too slow, and it's painful. So I look at him and say, I'll meet you there. And I pedaled away and didn't turn back. How we are is far more of how we've been historically. The past drags us around by the neck. It pulls us. It's not the future that propels us forward. It's the past. You see this when you see patterns in life. You can make justifications. You can easily explain away any individual scenario. But as soon as you start examining the past and looking for the patterns, suddenly reality jumps off the page and you begin to see the game. You begin to see what's afoot. 
And I think anytime we talk about how a person is showing up in relationship, it becomes very interesting to ask, how have they shown up in relationships? Yeah, this behavior that I have of avoiding in these stories is really congruent with me as a small girl. I'm in this environment avoiding conflict, avoiding saying my real feelings, avoiding a lot of big emotions. And I carry that into relationship. I also grow up in very conservative Christian home. So I'm avoiding other things too. I'm avoiding sinning. I'm avoiding lying, stealing, sexual, you know, conduct. The worst of the worst things. Right. (laughs) Right. So it's like, I, I'm avoiding a lot. And in relationship, I'm doing that as well. So when someone is asking for me to show up, it feels scary. And then I pull back and avoid. Mm. So in relationships, the pattern that is there all the way back to, what was it? Charlie? Was that? Charlie. (laughs) Charlie. You know, all the way back is actually an avoidance mechanism, a, a distancer pursuer kind of way of relating where you're the one distancing and they're the one pursuing. And that is such an interesting picture because here you are as this little boy and you're not avoiding. You are throwing yourself into um, giving that beautiful necklace to that girl. And what does she do? She runs away and she avoids, <laughs> right? There we are yeah. if we were paired up. Yeah. Um, man, did I, did I just try to recreate my past right there? Did I just try for a redemption story? And of course, that's one of the ways you resolve these games, right? That you have the same pattern, the same thing, but you make a different choice. There's a redemption. And that's one of the ways that you get out of these patterns. But for the most part, I think one of the really interesting things about relationship is just how much we recycle, kind of like watching a a greatest hits reel, you know, over and over and over, the same narratives. Yeah. And what is interesting in this, like our relationship, our working relationship, as you have really shown me to stick in there, work through it, talk through it. Emotions, they can be overwhelming or scary, but you can do it. Uh, This has been the most influential relationship in my life building that muscle that I can walk through things that are difficult and still be okay. It's a beautiful gift, one that I always feared along the way. Mm. I think here, you know, of course, we're kind of hitting on how we can begin to identify not only, you know, the red flags of others, which we've talked about before, but actually our own red flags, right? What we bring to the table. Yeah. If I was to look back on my trajectory, uh, it is comical. It is that runaway bride aspect of Julia Roberts. Like there's this revolving door and she is, she's the consistent of that pattern of behaviors. And as far back as I could see, I didn't often even know if guys liked me. 
because I was just moving through it. And I would always be surprised. Right? I'd always like, oh, really? Wow. I didn't know that. Uh, because I was deflecting those big emotions. I was acting as though I couldn't see them. I mean, guys and girls, right? That, that was like something that was really interesting about you look backwards. We've talked about this and it's like um, some of your best friends, you know, historically growing up, they were in love with you and it was a shock, right? Yeah, it was a shock. Partly because that wasn't, again, my belief system. So I wasn't looking for it. I didn't see it at the time. But it was. It was guys and girls having deep affection for me. And I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. I kind of refused to see it. Yeah. Which is pretty bizarre. And they'd become possessive of your time. They'd become jealous of your investments. Right? And in many ways, I wonder if that's because you were avoiding right? The whole situation and they're becoming more and more and more anxious. Yeah. I, some of the most miserable times in relating was, I think when there was a jealousy going on or there was misinterpretation of the circumstance and uh, I didn't see it. I couldn't fathom why it was such a big deal because I put everybody in what I would say, a friend zone, really. Yeah. And, you know, not to throw you under the bus too much on my side, because in reality, you can see the pattern for me just as clearly. Looking all the way back, there's a long-standing trajectory of offering up my whole heart with deep and overwhelming sincerity, being hurt, and then feeling justified in mm, maybe doing what I wanted, right? which I think is, you know, a very interesting commentary on on, uh, those kind of narratives. When we're wounded, it often allows us a great deal of justification to maybe get what we want in other ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that was a pattern that started very, very early on. Yeah. So when you were a little boy and you did that, if you didn't get what you wanted, how did it look sneaky? Well, that's just it. It w- it would look sneaky. Whatever it was, it would be, it would, you know, create an outlet where I could justify, you know, whether it was eating more candy or, or later on, perhaps looking at pornography or, or further down the line, you know, cheating on a girlfriend or those kinds of things. I, I, I look at that, that steady series of progression. I see, well, the mechanism, the emotional mechanism was almost always the same. Deep, participation, which was rarely shared, uh, that then created a story of victimization and then justification to get my needs met in other ways. And I had the most difficult time surrendering, really giving up. I don't think it was a giving up of self, but like an opening up to others. When something ratcheted up, that's when I started to close in and then move on. Mm. And so you kind of Uh, when large affection was shown to you or kindness of heart or those kind of things, it became the signal to retract. Yeah. In my family of origin, generosity and noticing and things like that, that felt good. Outside of that, when things ratcheted up, and I would even say like it was really based on probably sex and intimacy and vulnerability that way. I just didn't have a container for that. And so I got as close as I could and then, you know, pivoted. Mm. Did anybody ever call you on this pattern? Oh my goodness. 
Oh, maybe. I think the probably my most serious boyfriend in college, his sister really didn't like the way that I treated him. Oh, what'd she say? Uh, she doesn't treat you very well. <laughs> uh, I think it was because uh, I still did what I wanted to do. And I was pretty independent of, of that relationship. And he was all in. And so she probably thought it was a mismatch. Man, I am so glad that we did not meet until we did. <laughs> it might not have worked out. I don't think so. <laughs> You're not ready till you are. Yeah. I spent a lot of time taking a step in and having a step out. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. Of course, this is a principle of basic shadow work. And I think one that we use a lot in our professional lives to help people tease out their patterns like we were talking about earlier. Feedback is a really important kind of way that you can suss out um, what's been happening. What are the through lines for you? What are the characteristics that you might want to begin to work on that we often are oblivious to, right? I, I, I remember having a boss who um, he confronted me on an issue and I had a great explanation for it. Great explanation. Totally justified myself. And he looked at me and he said, you're really smart. And boy, you can really explain that away. But you can't explain away a pattern. Mm. Yeah. I have this memory of something similar that was from a supervisor in college who said, Christy, when you're here and you're present, you're very powerful, but it's hard to pin you down. Mm. Yeah. What did you feel when you heard that? She was right. <laughs> you thought she was right. Yeah. Because in a room of people, it was, it was part of a leadership type program. If I was in a room and I was focused in that room, I saw that I could be really influential, dynamic, focused, that it mattered. But after I would leave that, um, I didn't invest in those places as much as when I sat down and gave to it. So when she said it, I believed it because I felt it. I just didn't know how to integrate more parts than that. It must have um, been scary, I think, uh, on one hand, to hear that, though. Um, in my experience, whenever a core characteristic that I don't like has a light shine on it, part of my response is to say, no way, no way, not me. Or to quickly lash out and point the finger at them. Well, yeah, I think you might know this better than anybody is. I've had a really hard time taking responsibility for my behaviors. And I've had a really hard time saying, I'm sorry. And when, you, when you're mentioning that, I just kind of talk about like a sense of self. Sometimes people call that the ego. I don't, I don't want to go there because ego means lots of different things. But like the sense of self, I don't think that I had a very strong sense of self that could take that responsibility. So I get the defensiveness that you're talking about. For you in that situation with your supervisor, 
What was that like for you saying it's a pattern? Oh, I mean, he was wrong. He didn't know what he was talking about. He absolutely um, was oblivious to the fact that I was, uh, I was correct. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Right. Like they always are. They're wrong. And that's a great, that's a great deflection strategy. That's one of um, these really wonderful defense mechanisms that comes in and says, no way, I am blameless. Yeah. I think, and I mentioned it before, but one of my defense mechanisms is shame. Like you asked me how I responded to that and I said, oh, she was right. And I'm sitting here conjuring up that memory thinking, oh, and I felt like something was really wrong with me as well. Now, how could shame be a defense mechanism in this case? What do you mean? What I mean by that is the first thing that comes to my mind, I can't even listen to her input. So I'm pretty much deflecting it back, not able to hear what she's saying, but to say there's fundamentally something wrong with me. And so I focus on the inward process. I'm bad. I must have missed something. And so that's where I go instead of listening to her and thinking, yeah, how can I work on that? How can I try something new? I'm just a bad person now. Mm, Isn't that interesting? These two very polar opposite defenses, one that becomes the aggressor that attacks, that lashes out, that says no way. And the other that takes total and all-consuming responsibility and kind of cocoons itself in shame. Both of them are actually no longer listening. They're no longer in dialogue. They're not actually hearing um, the feedback. Yeah, and that behavior uh, continues and still continues today if I'm not really careful. Shame is that instantaneous response that, oh my gosh, something's wrong with me. What's going on? And then I really try to overfunction and take responsibility for everything so I can decrease that sense of shame. It's not really that helpful. Yeah, it doesn't seem very effective in the grand scheme of things as we try to listen to those, um, those patterns that come up in relationship. You know, one of the best places to look for patterns is when you're first beginning to get to know someone. You're just starting to date them. You're just getting to know their story. Maybe you're becoming friends and you kind of are already sniffing around. You're already asking questions. Now, people want to put their best foot forward in those cases, right? Um, But sometimes I think it would be better to kind of actually just let it all hang out at that point, right? Because we're least defended in those moments. What's the risk? They're not going to like me? I just met them. I agree. Why do we do that? It's the point where we lose the least and we don't do that. It becomes more complicated as we get farther down the line. When I think about our relationship and where we started, my initial response is, well, we didn't avoid much. I didn't feel like we avoided a lot. And then we start taking off the layers and we look underneath like, oh yeah, we did. (laughs) Right. It was like the kind of job interview, you know, where it's like, well, what, 
what are your, what are your real weaknesses here? And, you know, you're responding like, well, I guess you could say I communicate too much, you know? <laughs> yeah, you're looking at the strength. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're trying to turn that liability into an asset. And I think that's how it works. Or you're honest and the other person upon hearing that, you know, it's like you say, well, I am a serial killer. And they go, oh my God, thank you for being so honest. That's amazing. He's so incredible. <laughs> He's so honest. <laughs> Right. We're not really looking through eyes that are seeing reality and we're not really communicating reality. Pretty easy to do. But herein is a beautiful opportunity. And that is to begin to engage and begin to ask, what are the patterns? What are the things that start very, very early on for us? And the person sitting across the table. Can you imagine having a conversation like that? Like, so tell me about the the first person you uh you had a crush on in grade school how'd that go for you <laughs> yeah as you're talking i'm thinking about the thing i never wanted to experience was heartbreak mm. like that deep avoidance that started a long time of being rejected i was okay with rejecting and i was okay with leaving right like this hand length out I have a story that is another very like cringeworthy story that I just came to my mind. This guy I dated in college. I gave him a Bible. It was Easter time. He was staying with my parents and my family. And it was a really big gift, a really meaningful gift. But as you know, in the beginning of a Bible, there is an inscription presented to by this person on this date. And I saw that introduction and I didn't want to put my name down and his name down together. It was like something I couldn't do because in my mind, it was like, if this doesn't work out, I don't want my name on there with his. I, I, I don't want these things commingling. So what did I do? I got a knife out. I cut out that page and like it never existed. The crazy thing was, is he noticed, obviously. It's like, <laughs> it's so embarrassing. It's like the boy on the phone call. He noticed it. Mm. So then I was embarrassed. And then I had to tell a story as to why. Mm -hmm. Patterns. Patterns. The principle in shadow work, of course, is that there are two fundamental forms of feedback. One is situational, right? Something happens. Something happens. Someone out there sees it, encounters it, gives you a form of feedback. Maybe you don't like it. Maybe it's not great. The second is patternistic feedback, where you might not get any feedback for a really long time, but life begins to give you feedback. There's diminishing returns. Over time, those patterns of either throwing my heart against the wall uh, in order to justify doing what I wanted, or you avoiding and um, running away, they ran out of steam. Yeah, there were dead ends. They didn't get us very far. I can say they didn't get me very far. And I think in the end, for me, like, I think I swung really hard in another direction, tried something else out because they continued to stop me. 
and fear of intimacy, fear of connection, um, fear of probably really sexual encounters for me at that time. They were roadblocks. Okay, okay. Here, here's a story. A boy, picture him, maybe nine, ten, falls in love with a girl. She's the prettiest girl in the school, he thinks. And she has long brown hair and, and big brown eyes and, and, and a beautiful mouth. And, well, she doesn't notice him at all. She doesn't see him in the halls. She doesn't hear him in the classroom. She doesn't know that he draws their name in mechanical pencil on his trapper keeper with hearts around it and, and sometimes whispers silent Shakespeare sonnets to her. She doesn't really even know his name. And then one day, the boy's older brother comes home and he's selling 14 karat gold necklaces. They're fit for royalty, he says. Now, the boy wants to get the girl one, but he can't afford it because $30 is a lot of money, more than he has ever held in his hands at one time. But he thinks that if he can just buy one and give it to her, she'll notice him. She'll like him back. And then he'll be, well, he'll be happy. And then he remembers this giant jar of quarters on his parents' bedroom uh, counter. And he pries off the lid, and he siphons out the quarters, and he gives them to his brother, who knows better than to ask questions, and just hands him the jewelry. And on the playground, the boy runs over and shoves the necklace at her, and says he likes her, and he hopes she likes him too, and then he runs away. And then the next day, she comes over to the boy with a plain envelope, and it has the gold necklace in it. And he asked why she was giving it back, and, and she said it's because her parents made her, and, and when he asked why again, she said it was because she didn't like him too, and then ran away. And he's standing there, this boy, heart in hand, necklace dangling, against his leg, everything he was willing to beg, borrow, and steal for. Now it's gone. And isn't that always how it is? I mean, someone's left holding the goods. Well, that's a good story, isn't it? Whew. That story, I'm there with you. And I see everything that you're laying on the line. It feels weighty. It feels heavy. And you're trying to be still the best version of yourself, still wanting to hold this gold chain at the same time thinking, maybe there's someone else who I'd rather give this to. Yeah, my heart was tremendously fragmented in that moment, right? I'm still trying to run this old play that has decreasingly stopped working, right? It's just not working over time. And, um, but I'm still trying to run it here and I'm empty and I'm exhausted. And now I'm cycling pretty hard, right? Over and over and over. We met at the wrong time and the wrong place. We're never the villains in our own story. I met her almost a decade into a tired and 
limping marriage. I walked nightly to her door. It felt fated. I looked at her. This woman who I was willing to leave. My wife, my family, in order to have. She's curled by my side, leg slipping from beneath the sheets hanging over the ledge, her hair swirling around us, and I knew I was about to break her heart. A few months earlier, at a pub, she had looked at me, this lover of mine, and had asked if she was worth it. Was she worth the cost? And my mind raced to the people I was losing, close friends who would never understand, a, a spouse I had known and cared about for a decade, a business, property, community, faith. And I imagined the loss. I imagined every single ending. Looking back, I'm embarrassed that I told her that she was worth it. I think there are some costs that are too great. I told her I would do anything to be with her. And she smirked and she said, anything? She half hung over the table and obliterated my horizon. Anything. And I meant it. Do you know what? It didn't matter that I already had one love interest and another half dozen hearts out there besides hers. Happening all at once. This was the one. This new delight. This potential of what she could be to me and what I might be. She was different, and maybe I could be different. And by the time I had her, I didn't want her. She didn't have me. It had never been what I wanted. I wanted to find myself, and you can't find yourself in someone else. You want to. You hope it can happen. But it can't. This is the relationship that, in so many ways, was the crowbar ending to my former marriage and a relationship that I was incredibly hesitant to talk to you about when we began to interact with one another. And I was hesitant to talk to you about it because it revealed the pattern too much. Yeah, this wasn't a story until I heard till after, you know, we were in relationship for quite some time. And I was shocked by it because I had avoided any in-depth conversation really about your sexual history, about your partners, and really dug in to your divorce. And had I done that, and had you been willing to tell me about it, I would have found it. So my pattern of avoiding helped really keep that secret or that line of information um, from me. And so I didn't know. And when I did, I actually felt pretty heartbroken by it because I was worried about this pattern after that. It wasn't necessarily on my radar. Right. And this is one of the reasons why we conceal things early on, because those patterns, those histories, they don't just apply to then and there things. They reveal things about who we are here and now, unless we've done deep and intensive work to shift those things. Yeah. So then I had new questions. Because that wasn't part of, you know, our story. So what was it? And I don't know if it mattered who was it, but it made me feel doubt and made me feel worry for, I would say, probably the first time knowing that that was a pattern. Right. And I think that that is an appropriate response when you begin to learn about people's um significant uh, and 
you know, overarching behaviors, you begin to think to yourself, hmm, should I have to worry about this? Um, I'm curious what the reasons are that you observe that people don't do that, that people hearing patterns um, don't pay it more attention. We've talked about this a little bit, but we think something's going to be different this time. So I think that's probably the first one is that we think this this situation will not happen again. You've learned your lesson. You've turned over a new leaf. Uh, that was then. This is now. Fear of losing something then it probably is the second one is that, oh my gosh, we're so many months or years into this, uh, afraid of that loss that could come up. Um, and uh, maybe denial <laughs> that, you know, that could be something as well. Right. I think there's also a bit of exceptionalism in it. Um, oftentimes when the person sitting across from you has had a set of behaviors that maybe has applied to their life, you kind of feel like, well, now that I'm in their life, I'll be the one to break them from the pattern. And there's kind of a self-congratulatoriness to that process, right? That I will actually be the amazing one, the great one, the rescuer who will liberate them from this problem. So yes, they've had a problem. Yes, it's been a pattern, but I'll help fix it. That's a reflection on you. That, that's got to feel pretty good to be the one to save someone's life. <laughs> yeah, everyone likes to feel special. We all love to feel special. I'm the one. I'm the one that's chosen. This is a different situation, different circumstance, different lover. I can heal all the things that have been broken in the past. And so, yeah, you might forgo some of those awkward and interesting places. Um, I know in that situation, you felt a lot of shame in that particular, um, those informations that you shared with me. And I also felt, I felt heartbroken at that time just because that was a, a truth I didn't know. So we both held a lot of kind of concern and worry in that time. So right there, we begin to see how not only are we ourselves inclined to avoid or deflect or minimize forms of feedback in our life like patterns, but actually the people who we call into our lives are equally motivated to not see the patterns too. Yeah, it takes guts to sit in that situation and then tease out more questions. And when we talked about, um, I think red flags was one of it, like, why aren't we pulling out more information? At that point, why aren't you asking more questions and digging deep? And what don't you want to see? Are you colluding with the story? Are you protecting it? Is there responsibility? These are important aspects to the breaking those patterns. So breaking the patterns comes with different behaviors. You know, I, I'm reading an Ernest Hemingway biography right now, and it's talking about some of his relational patterns. In particular, we're talking about the, the first marriage and the end of his first marriage um, and the affair, the overlapping relationship with the woman who would become his second wife. It's sort of interesting because they were all friends. And at one point, his first wife, Hadley, finds out about Pauline, her friend, 
the other woman that she's having an affair with Ernest. And she confronts Ernest. And he becomes very, very angry at her. And he says, why couldn't you have just let things be the way they are? Why did you have to uncover this? He became very, very outraged. And in fact, some of their friends said the same thing. You know, Hadley, how could you do this? How could you let the cat out of the bag that way? And I sometimes think that that there is a part of us that kind of rises up whenever we notice patterns in ourselves or, or maybe others. And, and there is that response. Like, why are, you, why are you uncorking this? Why are you going around rummaging and looking for all these things? Why do you ask these kinds of questions? Can't you just leave well enough alone? Why are you changing the patterns on us? This playbook is set in motion and now we're off. We're off our game. And now when you do that, we have to either do a great cover up. We have to get angry. We have to get defensive. We've got to run a new racket. And that puts a lot of pressure on the system. In systemic work, when someone in the family changes behaviors, everyone around them is effective. The whole system goes into disarray. And that's what happens in this situation when someone pulls out a block, the patterns get revealed, it feels shaky. And so oftentimes we avoid that. We don't want to feel the chaos. Even if the behavior is dysfunctional, we're used to that. We'd rather have the comfort of that. So we keep it status quo a lot of times. Of course, whenever you're talking about situations like this, of course, I, you know, I, I withheld a fairly large piece of information, which is the end of my former marriage, at least in part, had a parallel relationship involved. That's a big thing to withhold. That's a big secret to keep to enter into. How does one justify those secrets? Well, the same way that we justify any of our secrets. The justifications aren't terribly different. People who keep little secrets justify it the exact same way. Well, they don't need to know this. It's not relevant. We're building a new story now. Or, you know, this is sacred. This is a part of the past that sacred that I've closed the door to. I've, I've closed that book. I've put it on the bookcase. It belongs in the past. You know, I remember my father as a minister preaching a message saying, God put our sins in the sea of forgetfulness and put a sign on the edge that says no fishing, right? Don't go looking. Don't go looking for these past things. We really justify it pretty easily. And I think that, you know, when we, when we talk about these patternistic ways of being, it's easy to minimize and say, well, they'd never want to know something so small. Yeah, that word justification, I was thinking that the entire time. Like, yeah, we have a million reasons why we wouldn't. Pop quiz me on them. I, I can let you know all the ways and all the reasons. And it catches up. I've said to myself, this will be different. I won't be the same. And then because we're asleep to ourself, we show up that way again and we're surprised by it thinking, oh, how did this happen? I thought I left it on the sea of forgiveness, right? I thought I left it back there. And because I didn't examine it and work through it, it's back. Right. 
And just like family of origin, which we talked about extensively several episodes ago, you know, patterns of past relationships is an important tell because it gives us insight into future actions. It's not the only thing that gives us insight into future actions. But if you really want to have a valid predictor of behavior, you look at history. We tend to look, though, with large binoculars and not magnifying glasses. The devil's in the details. It's way more interesting to talk about what happened in elementary school. What happened in middle school? What happened, uh, what happened you know, as you got a little older? That's why psycho, psychotherapists or psychologists are always asking these questions, right? Not because I think they're really interested in filling out some kind of detailed history of you, but because it creates a picture of what's going on in the here and now. This morning, I sat across from you and I thought to myself, you are such a different person than a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. Oh my gosh, 12 years ago. And what I loved when I sat across from you is that you know yourself today and you didn't cut yourself off from all those experiences and memories and things like that and those, those things that have happened. There's been integration. There's been challenging of self. There's been acceptance. There's been responsibility taking. And I guess when I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, since we all have a past, should we never date anybody? <laughs> right? Like, oh right. my gosh, we all have a past. We all have these patterns. Like, how do you know when the person across from you is ready? How do you know when you're ready to step into relating? I love sitting across from me this morning thinking like, oh my gosh, you're a different man and you're the same. But different because you know who you are. Yeah, and that right there is so key to the whole mess of it. You have to be able to look at what is in order to get to where you want to be. There's no way to bypass. We want to. We want to say, well, this is who I am today. This is who I am now. Can't you see that? But that's largely aspirational. It isn't until you get into the weeds, into the nitty gritty, and have turned over the soil of who you are over and over and over that you're actually anything like free. Because for the most part, what we do is we avoid looking at our pasts. We avoid knowing our patterns. And so our past patterns dictate our present realities. And I would say at different parts of my life, I thought I was there. I thought I was ready or I thought that I had challenged myself or I thought I had opened myself up or I thought I was vulnerable. And today I look at that and say, whoa, you really weren't. You were still playing out those old patterns. So I'm sitting with someone new. What am I looking for? So they have a past. So do I. How do I know if they're turning the soil 
How do I know if they have a sense of self or repeat it? How will that, how will I know? Oh, that's a great question. It actually reminds me of the Kung tribe in Africa that um, anthropologists who studied them um, discovered that this wonderful tribe of hunter-gatherers had some really interesting rituals. And one of them was they would go up and sniff you as you walked into their territory. They would smell you, you know. And what were they looking for? Well, they were looking for something really gross because sometimes they would even smell like your poop. (laughs) They would smell your armpits. They would smell, you know what they were looking for? Where you had been before. And they could tell where you had been before based upon the foods that were passing through your system, right? They were looking for insight into where you had been. And I think that's a really, really beautiful thing. Today in our world, do you know what we do with smells? Covered up with cologne, we, we sanitize, we, we make sure that nobody can smell our smells. Our shit don't stink, <laughs> right? Literally. Um, and I think that herein lies a principle. We're avoiding talking about the places we've been. If we were walking into the Kung tribe's territory, they would say, I can't trust you then. One of the first things I'm looking for in a person is that they're a master of their own story. They know their story inside and out, that -hmm. they're not surprised by it, that they're not um, offended by it either, that they know that happened. That really happened. If you're constantly defending what happened in the past, if you're constantly taken off guard by it or pretending it didn't occur or justifying it, you haven't looked at it thoroughly. A person who walks into the room and says, yeah, that happened. That was me. And by the way, there's some details you missed. Let me give them to you. That's someone who I can trust because they know where they've been. Yeah. Talking to someone recently there was a lot of blame in the conversation and the opposite of blame is responsibility. And once I step into responsibility, then I can make real shifts in my life. And I love that, that picture that you give is, and let me tell you the other stuff too. I can own it. And I don't have that shame. I might feel bad about some of those things, but I'm not bad. Mm, Yeah. When we begin to ask these big questions about relationships, where they went south, we're rarely talking about the thing that just happened. We're talking about things that started in elementary school. We're talking about threads that began all the way back when you're holding a gold necklace to a girl who gives it back to you in a manila envelope, or a time you rode away your bicycle from a boy who couldn't keep up. We're talking about these long-standing trajectories. So of course we can say, well, what killed the marriage? And mean, oh, well, it was that he neglected her. Or was it she cheated on him? Or it was this, or it was that. Well, of course, those are the epicenter events. But the reality is the real suspects usually are far more obscured hidden in the background, just out of sight. Thank you for listening to this episode of Love Like Hell. We appreciate your support so much. Listen, would you do us a small favor? 
If you love the show, will you leave a fabulous five-star review? And don't forget to share this with all your friends. Okay. Well, until next week, I'm Rainier. And I'm Christy. Live like mad and love, love like, like hell. Love like hell. That, that was my signature. Uh, 